stop using that card. We're only making minimum payments. We're never gonna get that thing paid off. Well, we didn't need a bigger TV. Look, you do that every time. I told you it doesn't work. No, now we can't pay for that. It's like you don't know how to do math. What? Why don't you just do it? It worked so great when you were trying to balance it out. Yeah. No. Look, now that's too much for this. See, it messes that up right there. Oh, so I'm just supposed to sit around and do absolutely nothing. Let's ask Jesus what he thinks. So, Jesus, what do you think? What would you do? There. It's all fixed. That could work. Yeah. If we move this over here. Oh, okay, let me, hold on. What if we transfer this over there? Oh. How are we gonna make it to the end of the month if you do that? Oh, so we have to take Jessica out of dance because of that? I mean, you wanna pay for your rock climbing trip but I can't get my hair done? And you can't comb your own hair? Well, we're in a series, like I said, that's called Behind Closed Doors. And we're looking at what it means to invite Jesus into our lives like if we were to invite him to live in our house. And we're kind of looking through the different rooms that represent the areas that we have in our life and how those areas would be impacted by Jesus if he were living in us fully. And last week, Dave talked about the living room where he explored the idea of understanding what God desires for us is only going to happen when we sit with him and are hear from him, specifically what he calls us to. And if you were here, you got to do what we call a soap journal where you look at scripture, make an observation, apply it and pray about it. I hope you guys had a chance to do that during the week. If you didn't see the message, go to the website or the app and check it out. It's really, really, really good stuff. And this week, uh, we're talking about the home office, and the home office is uh, representative of our finances. Okay, so now I know that I said that word, finances and money, and I know that for many of you, hearing that we're going to be talking about money today, some of you said swear words in your head. Some of you may have mumbled them out loud to the person next to you or threw up in your mouth a little bit. I, I get it, okay? When we talk about finances or money in the church, there's a reaction that often is partnered with it. And I think that the reason uh, we, we have that reaction, there are two reasons actually, okay? And first, let me just ask you this. When you see that video, if you're married, anyone relate to that? Anyone go, oh man, that, that looks like me. Or even if you're not married, you might be going, yeah, my finances are kind of stressful when I have to think about it, right? And so I would say I think there are two reasons why when we talk about money, and particularly in the church, people tend to have a reaction to that topic. The first is stress. And what I mean by that is maybe your finances are a little bit sideways from what you'd like them to be. Maybe, maybe your retirement fund isn't what you want it to be. Maybe your savings is lower than, it, than, than you'd like. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe you have debt or, or uh, you feel like you're under-earning. You know, we, there's a lot of stress that surrounds finances. And here's what I would tell you. I, it was really interesting when I was preparing for this. I came across a USA Today article called Stress in America, Paying with Our Health. And they looked at the key stressors in American life. And they cited an American Psychological Association study that was done. Now, here's some cool stuff. 
We're at a seven-year low for stress. Stress is reducing over, the year, over time, over these last seven years. And you know what the number one stress was seven years ago? Say it. Money. Yeah. Money. But now we're at a, a seven-year low, and guess what the number one stress is now? Money. money. <laughs> See, money is a stressor. Some of these statistics are, are quite staggering. Yes, we're at a low, but still money is the number one stress. It, uh, it's more stressful than work-related stuff. It's more related than family responsibilities. It's more stressful than health concerns. It's at the top of the list. Nearly three out of every four people in this study said they have stress over money. More interesting, one out of every five. So let me just say this. Three quarters of the people are stressed. So from, from here over, you guys are all stressed out. You guys are fine. Good job. <laughs> all right? But here's, here, that's a lot, that's a high percentage. One out of every five adults either skipped or considered skipping going to a doctor for treatment because of the cost. That's pretty substantial. And almost a third of, the adult, of adults with partners reported that a major source of, the major source of conflict between them is money. So you can see it's pretty important. Also, an, an unrelated AARP study that came out was pretty interesting and it cited, so sometimes you'll hear, well, if I just made more money, if we made more money, that would solve the problems. The reality is that it made no difference how much someone made. High earners and low wage earners had the same reaction to stress around finance and agreement on how to spend. So I looked, I'm like, well, why, what is all this stress? The average household in America carries $15,000 of credit card debt $168,000 of mortgage debt, $27,000 of auto loan debt, $48,000 of student loan debt, and $130,000 of other debt. Average household. Am I helping you guys feel better now? Is this relieving your stress? So when you talk about money, it's just stressful because of the current situation. But I would tell you this. The second thing is when the church talks about money, there's a reaction, and that reaction is distrust. That many people believe that the church is just after your money. And here's what I want to tell you. In fairness, through the years, the church, or people calling themselves the church, have not done a very good job in moving us away from that stereotype. If you remember back in the 80s, the rise of the televangelist, and people who in the name of God built people for millions of dollars, but it was all for personal gain. And then they pointed at God and said, yeah, it's him. And so sometimes when we talk about church, you could have the reaction, we're like, well, we're gonna talk about money again, he's gonna ask for more of mine. He wants a piece of my pie too, right? But here's what I want you to understand is that I believe with all of my heart that proper understanding of God's perspective on how to handle money is essential for you to live in the completeness of who God designed you to be individually and in relationships. You see money not only blowing up an individual's life, you see money issues blowing up relationships left and right. And so if you're here this morning and you are talking about money and you had that reaction, here's what I want to ask of you. Will you please just grant me this one 
little favor. Will you sit and try and have an open heart to what I have to say because I believe it's so essential to your walk with Jesus that you handle your finances according to his plan, okay? And it's, you know what's interesting? Jesus talked a lot about money. He talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. The only thing he talked about more than money, you know what it is? The kingdom of God. And in 11 out of 39 parables were about money and gold and riches and wealth. See, and when you understand the stress and the distrust that goes along with money, it's no wonder he talked about it so much. Because if we don't get a good grasp on how to manage our money properly, it's going to continue to blow up our lives. And so I'm just, again, I'm asking, will you please, with an open heart, listen to what I have to say. And what I want to do this morning as we move forward is I want to look at what I believe are six lies that Satan wants us to believe about our finances. Six lies. But before I do, I want you to see how Satan manipulates us into believing lies about finances and a general operating procedure that he uses to trick us into believing things that aren't true. He's not super creative in terms of making new plans and plots to deceive us. He's used the same thing since the beginning of time because if it ain't broke, right, don't fix it. So here's what I want to do. I want to just start. I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the Bible. And I want to look at the first encounter that we have with Satan and humanity when they, inter when they interact and see how he starts to trick us into believing lies, Okay? So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. And what we find in Genesis chapter 3, if you remember, God had created the heaven and the earth. And man is living there. And he's created the woman. And they're running around naked. And they love it. And the vegetation is fantastic. They have no idea that animals could kill them because they're just living in harmony with everything. It's a fantastic world, right? And then enter the serpent, Satan. And it says this, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? No, of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Okay. Let me just explain to you how Satan wants to attack truth in our life to get us to believe things that are not true. The first thing we see in Genesis chapter 2, and this is kind of interesting, God lays out the plan. All this stuff, it's yours. The river running through, it's fantastic. You can have it, eat anything. Just one tree. Don't eat of that tree. That's the plan. And he tells it to Adam. You know what he does next? Then he creates Eve. So Eve wasn't even there. Who does Satan go to? Her. And the first thing he says is this. The first thing that happens in Satan's plan is he questions the truth. What's he say? He says, did God really say? Did he really say that? 
See, once he starts to create question in our mind, we start to have questions about what we actually believe and we get confused. And he went to the woman. What, now, don't build theology around this. This is just my projected thought. I think what might have happened, well, what I know happened is God went to Adam, we see in chapter 2, and he says, here's the tree, don't eat from that, the rest is good. And then he creates Eve, and then I think maybe Adam went and said, hey, Eve, we can't eat of this tree. You know what, but let's not even touch it. Let's not tempt ourselves. And then when Satan comes, he says, you really, you can't eat, a, you can't, and he said, no, we can eat everything, we just can't eat from this tree. Actually, we can't even touch it. See, what's already happened is she's starting to get a little confused about what the rules really are. For all we know, they could have played catch with the stuff or gone bowling with the fruit off the tree. We don't know. But what we do know, there's a little bit of confusion happening. And so she says, no, we can't eat it. We can't even touch it. Because if we do, we're going to die. Next thing he does after he questions it, he challenges it outright. You're not going to die. You ever find you're reading through God's word and you read something just like, no, that's ridiculous. No, no, I'm not going to. No. See, once we start questioning and get confused about what the truth is, we start to go, well, that can't be right. That's exactly what Satan's plan is. He questions it, then he challenges it. He says, you're not going to die. And then the third thing he does is he twists the truth just a little bit. And he's really clever because he twists it intermingled with truth. And she says, we're going to die. And he says, you're not going to die. You, let me tell you what's really going to happen if you eat this fruit. He says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. See, here's the, here's the problem with this clever little twist. As soon as they ate it, it says their eyes were opened. That's what he says. Hey, God's saying you're going to die. You're not actually going to die. What's going to happen is you're going to have more knowledge. You're going to be more aware. It's true. But you know what? Ignorance is bliss. They didn't need more truth. They had complete connection with God. What more did they need in their life? And they felt like, well, I don't know. See, in Satan, you know why Satan got kicked out of heaven? Because he wanted to be God. He wasn't content. And so what's the, what's the lie he starts peddling to Adam and Eve? Hey, your eyes will be opened. You'll have more knowledge. And you will be like God. See, what he actually does with the twist is he creates an alternate truth that's really close. It's just barely different, it would seem, on the surface. But it's miles apart. And what happens is we like that truth better. Let me see. Die or be God. Yeah, I want to be God. And so they fall for the lie. And what I'm telling you is not a truth that only runs Satan's plan for our finance. It's how Satan operates in, in challenging the authority and the truth of God's word. And in those situations, like Dave said last week, if you're not spending time with God and hearing from him directly, you're going to have a really difficult time arguing when stuff doesn't seem like the way you'd like it. And so what I want to do, now we understand how God and Satan clash in terms of truth and Satan's challenge to truth. I want to just, just, oh, let me, this is really cool too, by the way. So we see, um, so what does Satan say? If you eat that fruit, what's going to happen? Your eyes will be opened. Yeah, you're going to have new knowledge. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, says this. This is the Sermon on the Mount, part of the, part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. 
But when your eye is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. You see what happened? They opened their eyes to something that they believed was light. What did Satan promise? It was going to make them like God. And in actuality, it was darkness because it made them less like God and more like who? Satan, who desired to be God. See, oh, no, more knowledge, more awareness. That's not always good stuff. So what I want to do is I want to look at six lies that Satan wants you to believe about your finance that will keep you from operating under the blessing of God. The first one is this. Lie number one, godliness with great gain is contentment. In other words, if I pursue God and some stuff, I'll be content. Adam and Eve are the perfect example of how that doesn't work. See, they had complete, God, it tells us God walked with them in the cool of the day. They had one-on-one conversations with God. And what happens? There's one thing they can't have and they want, want, I tell this joke all the time. How many guitars a guitar player needs? One more. I tell it all the time. It's a funny joke. So laugh. But here's the thing. It's not just guitars. See, that's how we live our life. One more. Even Adam and Eve in the garden were not content enough to say, I don't need that. I've got God. And what we learn is, what we believe, according to Satan, is that godliness with great gain is contentment. What the scripture actually says is godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me say it this way. Godliness and being happy with him and him alone is what we really need. And the very second you think you need one more thing, you're not content. The very second you start, godliness and this will make me content, you're not content. And we buy into that. I love this story. There was an industrialist who saw this fisherman sitting on the dock one day and not fishing, and he said, he says that, walks up to the fisherman, he said, well, so why, why, uh, why aren't you fishing? And he said, well, I've caught enough for the day. He said, well, why don't you go out and catch more? And he said, well, what would, what would I do with more fish? He said, well, you, you, you could make more money. You, you could uh, buy a bigger boat. You could go deeper out in the water, buy, buy nylon nets and, uh, and uh, catch more fish and make more money. One day you could probably even have a fleet of boats. He said, okay. You'd be rich like me. And the fisherman said, okay, then what would I do? He said, well, then you could sit down and enjoy life. And the fisherman said, what do you think I'm doing right now? So, you know, what I don't want you to hear is that I'm saying we shouldn't aspire or we shouldn't work hard or we shouldn't try and maximize our dollars. What I'm saying is your contentment will never come from that. Your contentment will only come from knowing that God is your source of everything. Lie number one. Oh, I love this too. Benjamin Franklin says, content makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men poor. See, we believe that godliness with great gain equals contentment. The truth is, 1 Timothy tells us, godliness with contentment is great gain. And they couldn't be more opposite. But Satan wants you to believe the lie. The second lie, lie number two, is this, that God doesn't care about my money 
He wants my heart. God doesn't care about my money. He wants my heart. Look at this again, picking up in Matthew chapter 6. says this, Jesus speaking. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, uh, hear me clearly. God totally wants your heart. He wants 100% of your heart. But he also understands that money, your wallet, your checkbook, your bank balance is the number one indicator of whether he's got your heart or not. Don't believe me? Look at it. It says right there, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say where your heart is, your treasure will follow. He says your heart follows your treasure and where you invest shows where your heart is. And the reality is he can't have all of your heart if he doesn't have your finance. And we hear so often, people say, well, I don't give because I do this. I'm just going to tell you, if you're not financially giving, God does not have your heart. Continuing in Matthew 6, he says this, No one can serve two masters, for, one will, uh, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be what? enslaved to money. See, where your money goes, if your money is going just to you, you've, you've decided who God is and guess who God is in your life? You. I'm, it's a harsh truth. I get I don't like that. I'd rather have all my money for me. But the reality is if I want God's blessing, it's clear that if I'm not giving, then I'm not living under his blessing and I'm actually not even calling him God truly. Here's a real practical example for those of you who'd buy the lie that God doesn't care about my money. It's this guy, Ananias, and his wife, Sapphira. This is in the early part of the, the gospel, uh, of Acts, where the gospel was blowing up and people were coming to Christ left and right by thousands. They were finding Christ. And this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, show up. And let me read this to you, and then I want to talk about this. It's a super practical example of how God does want your money. He says this, but there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles. Oh, and let me just say this. Let me interrupt myself. What happened at that time in the, in, in, uh, the spread of the gospel is people were living in, in uh, like, uh, community. Like, literally, they would sell their stuff, and then they just give it for the common good. That's what was happening, okay? And so what happens here, uh, picking up, uh, they, Ananias and Sapphira sold some property. Verse 2, and he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wish, and after selling, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. If God doesn't care about your money, 
then why is that passage in there? See, here's what happens, and I think this is what's going on, is that Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the appearance of, yeah, let's do this, and then if we give some of the money, God's going to bless us, and yeah, we'll do that thing. But here's the reality. It didn't matter if they're lying to people. He says, Satan's entered your heart, and you're lying to God. Make no mistake about it. If you're not giving your money to God, he's not going, I think they're giving me his, I think. No, God is very clear on whether you are or not. He's very clear on that. And you can think you're fooling him, but you're not. And again, as we said, if he doesn't have your wallet, he doesn't have your heart. That's the second lie, that God doesn't care about my money. He just wants my heart. The third lie is this. Lie number three is that God is okay with second place. We've talked about this before, but I just want to be really clear. There's a principle that runs throughout all of Scripture. It's called the first fruit principle. And we see it first in uh, Exodus chapter 13. Let me read this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now this principle of first fruits, we, it shows up here. There are two, two concepts that happen. There's a concept of sacrifice and there's a concept of redemption. Okay? Now here's the way this works. What he's saying, there, there are clean animals and there are unclean animals in the Old Testament. A lamb is a clean animal and a donkey represents the dirty animals or the unclean animals. And what he says is this. When you're a clean animal gives birth to its very first, sacrifice that to the Lord. And when your unclean animals, your donkey, gives birth to its very first offspring, redeem that animal by sacrificing a clean animal to me. Now why is that important? Because what we understand is that if God doesn't want second place, he doesn't say, eventually get to the place where you give me one of your animals. He's saying, no, trust me enough to know that if you give me the first fruit, the very first, my blessing will be on you. It's the first fruit principle that enacts the blessing on your life. The obedience of saying, this is God's plan. This is the way I'm going to do it. And you think about it this way. Humans here, um, everyone here in this room, were you born clean or unclean? Okay, not sure. Parents, how many of you had to teach your kids to be bad? Okay, just a little tip. We are born with a sin nature. We are not born clean. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, son of God. Born clean or not clean? Clean. And he was sacrificed on our behalf to redeem us to live under God's blessing. The same principle is true of our finances, and it has to be the first fruit. I, I wish I was rich, because then, I, for a lot of reasons, actually, but one of the reasons is because I'd love to have 10 $100 bills. So just imagine I have 10 $100 bills. The principle of first fruit goes like this. If I had $100 bills and I give one to this person, one to the banker, one to the mortgage, one to the car, one to the plumber, whatever, and then all my money's gone. How do you know which one's the first? It's the very first one you spend. 
If you want to know whether you are really giving first fruit to God, examine where your first dollars go. Now, I don't mean it necessarily has to be the very first thing you spend, but I'll tell you this. So often what we do with those 10 $100 bills or whatever they are, we go, well, here, 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 I've got this much left for God. Here you go, second place, God, creator of the universe, this is what I got for you. And yet we expect God to bless our finances when we give him the very last bit of what we have. It just doesn't work that way. This is why I love like push pay or even some of these app, you know, like even on your bank, you can just, this is what my wife and I do and it's, it's just great. We just allocate 10% of our money and it just, as soon as it comes in the bank, boom, it's gone. I never even think about it and I just live off the 90% because I believe this with all my heart that God needs to be first and 90% plus God's blessing way outweighs 100% outside of God's blessing. And I've seen it over and over and over and over and over in our lives. Lie number three is God's okay with second place. See, and the reason is because when we give him first, it demonstrates we are content with you and we trust you. Lie number four, the amount doesn't matter as long as I'm giving something. Let me just tell you this. In the Bible, we use this term here even at K2, but in the Bible you see this term. It's called a tithe. And a tithe is a very simple term. It means 10%. 10% of your income or whatever's coming in. Look at this passage. It's in Malachi chapter 3. And then I want to just talk about it for a second because it says this. Now, understand this first. In this passage, uh, in Malachi, what's happening is the people of Israel are living under wretched situations where there's oppression and they're living enslaved to all kinds of stuff and the crops aren't brought. All this terrible stuff's happening. And, and, and here, here's what we read. Malachi 3. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse. You're a whole nation because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store. Wow. The curse that they're living under is because they weren't tithing as a nation. Even their Levites, their, their, their pastors of the time, weren't even tithing. And he says, that's the reason you're in the curse. And he says, here's what's cool. I care about the money. He says, bring the whole tithe, not a portion of the tithe. Don't give 2% or 6% or 9%, 10%. Bring in the whole thing to the storehouse. And here's where his promised blessing is. And if you do, test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, I'm not trying to give you a Christian get-rich-quick plan, but I am telling you this, that if you want to live with your finances and your life being blessed by God, the way to do it is to be faithful in giving him the full tithe, bring the whole tithe to the storehouse. Very, very important. And it says for them they were living under a curse, but God promised to bless them. He says, try it. Hey, check it out. Try it. So many people say, I'm not seeing God's blessing because they've never stepped into the obedience of tithing faithfully. 
Lie number five is this, tithing is being generous. Truthfully, tithing is simply being grateful for what God has given you and being obedient to his call to give back to him what already belongs to him. We come across this really cool story in 2 Samuel. It's the story of David the king, and he had committed some sin in his life, and so he wanted to sacrifice to God to make atonement for his sin. And so he comes across this guy his name is Ariuna, and he, he comes across him, and he wants to buy his threshing floor, and, and here's where we pick up in 2 Samuel. He says this, take it, my lord, the king, and use it as you wish. Ariuna said to David, here are oxen for the burnt offering, and you can use the threshing boards and ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar. I will give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. But the king replied to Ariana, no, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that has cost me nothing. Tithing is being generous. That's a lie. Tithing is being faithful. And here's what I want you to understand. See, he goes to this Ariana guy and he says, hey, I want to buy this from you so that I can do this uh, uh, sacrifice. And the guy goes, it's all yours. Have it all. And he says, how can it be a sacrifice if it didn't cost me a thing? See, this is me just giving stuff that doesn't matter. Mother Teresa said it this way, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. Sir Henry Taylor says, he who gives what, would, what he would as readily throw away gives without generosity, for the essence of generosity is self-sacrifice. You want to know why 10% is such a magic number to me? Because I can feel 10% coming out of my paycheck. 1%, I can drop 1% and never even miss it. And if that's you, I challenge you to step up to the 10%, and yes, you will feel it but there's a promised blessing that comes with it. And I go back to that. Do you want 10% or do you want 90% in God's blessing or do you want 100% not God's blessing? The final thing I want to say is this. Lie number six, tithing is for the Old Testament. Okay, I will tell you that tithing does occur in the Old Testament in the law of Moses. I've heard this. I actually had this discussion with many people. Here's what I want to tell you. Do you know that murder is also Old Testament principle? Do you know adultery is an Old Testament principle? Stealing is Old Testament principle. Bearing false witness, Old Testament principle. How ludicrous would it be for us to go, well, that's Old Testament. We can kill and steal and have adultery now. That's Old Testament. But for some reason, I'll just tell you this too, tithing predates the law of Moses. We, we can see in Scripture with Melchizedek far before that and extends beyond. So I just want to tell you, just because we see it in the Old Testament doesn't mean I don't need to follow anymore. And I could, you know, be, I could be clever and give a response that I've heard before. Well, yes, it is an Old Testament uh, principle. And now in the New Testament, you know, God calls us to give everything to him. So if you want, you could give everything to him. I'm not going to say that because it's flip, though I do think it's clever how I slyly just slid that in. But here, here's what I want you to understand. It not only is an Old Testament principle, we see it in the New Testament. Look at Matthew chapter 23. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a, a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters 
of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. What's he saying here? He's saying you're tithing, but you're not practicing justice and mercy and faithfulness. And let me just be clear. You need to be practicing justice and mercy and but not at the cost. He says, you should be tithing. Continue tithing. That's the right thing. And practice these other things too. And so I want you to understand, because you say, well, tithing's not in the New Testament. Well, Matthew is in the New Testament. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And I want you to understand, it is not just an Old Testament principle that we can get, be done with. And here's what I want to invite the band up as we close this morning. We're going to transition to a time of musical worship where we get a chance to express to God who he is and who, who we believe he is. And I'm going to also invite our greeters. They're going to come forward. And we're going to take our offering. And I'm just, this is obviously a really practical step. Maybe if you came prepared to give today, you can give in the offering bags. If not, you can, you know, use the app or, or give online. And I'm going to pray. And again, I'm just going to tell you I'm telling you this as boldly as I can tell you this, and the reason I'm telling you this is because I believe God desires to be in the home office with you, bringing his blessing on your life and your finances. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful for all the blessing you give to us and for who you are, who you call us to be. We pray that we could find our contentment solely in you. We pray that you would have all our heart and our pocketbooks would reflect that. Pray that you would never be anything other than first place in our life. Pray that we would be giving according to what you call us to as a tithe. Pray that we would be able to understand the depths that you, even Jesus, that you went to as a first fruit offering on our behalf to redeem us back into the love of God. I just pray for every single person in this room. I pray for you to be indwelling our lives and moving us into a deeper relationship, helping us understand that your principles are greater than any other principle we can fall under. Anything we desire pales in comparison to our contentment being solely in you. We ask this in your name, amen. They're going to take the offering. I just want to share before we transition to worship here, I, musical worship, I just want to say one thing. See, Satan, again, he wants to question what's true, and he wants to challenge what's true, and he wants to twist just ever so slightly what's true about what God calls us to with finance and with our personal money. And I'm going to tell you that the reason he wants to twist the truth is because there is no way he wants you to live in complete community and the fullness of who God designed you to be. And if he can get you to believe a lie or create an alternate truth that you like better to keep you outside of the will of God, he's on it in a heartbeat. And what he wants you to think is that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is God holding out on you. He wants you to believe that God's keeping you from something when in fact, Satan is the one that's keeping you from being in completion with God. And finances is one of those areas. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe any of those lies. God desires full communion with you.